All right, Richard, we've done it. We're at the end of the third season of Star Trek Voyager. God, it felt like we were on the season for months and months and months and months and months when, you know, normally these only take like, what, like two months to do? Uh, Well, three months, <laughs> but, you know, you do have to remember that we did stop for almost two months to do Star Trek Discovery. So I thought we agreed we were not going to talk about Star Trek Discovery anymore. So worst case scenario. I liked this episode very much until, like, minute 30. Okay, I thought this was a great ep. I had a lot of fun with this episode. It was, in some ways, it was a stupid episode in the best way. It's definitely um, an episode that is coming right before a really serious episode. So, um, for this to be a kind of a fun hangout episode... I liked it. If the whole Seska's AI is attacking is stupid, I think it was stupid in the best way. See, I kind of disagree with you. I like worst case scenario quite a bit, although it well, is kind of the poor man's civil defense. But well, whatever. I mean, I, I and I don't. This is going to sound strange. I don't say it's stupid to insult it. Like, I mean that kind of as a compliment. No, no. I know exactly where you're coming from. And I, I think the listeners do, too. If they've been listening to this for long enough, I think they know that that both of us, I think you more than me, but but I appreciate it sometimes, too. You know, do, do we do appreciate a little bit of stupidity from time to time. This is not anything that is unusual for Star Trek. And you know, this is kind of a hangout episode. It's a fine episode. It's fun. It is a what-if episode in a way. My main issue with it is that I I find the I find everything leading up to the revelation that Seska has yeah. discovered the narrative program and has programmed it to be a murder device to be good. And then you get to that part and I start asking a lot of questions. Questions like why did Seska do this? When did she do this? For what reason did she do this? Yeah, I mean, it says that she programmed it about a month before she left the ship, right? What if they? What if Tuvok a week later decided to do this while she's still on the ship? Like, it makes sense if she did it, like, as her last act before leaving. But again, she only left because she was caught, right? Like, if, right. if, uh, if she hadn't been caught, she would have assumedly you know, been Seska-ing in the background indefinitely. So yeah, that doesn't quite make sense. I mean, in some ways, this is an episode that is an affectionate mocking of fan fiction. If it doesn't quite make sense, well, you know, this is a this is a version of Star Trek. These are writers who know that people are writing weird fanfics that, you know, what if the Maquis took over is something that somebody wrote on the internet, and they're just kind of going off with that. And so... I don't think we're intended to look at it that closely. Uh, uh, you're right. It does make, you know, it does kind of not make sense in its way, but, you know. See, this is so weird. I, I did not think that uh, us disagreeing on worst case scenario was going to be the Voyager Hill that I died on, but but I guess it is. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just feel like to some degree you are grading voyager on a curve and and yeah. maybe you need to maybe that's okay i don't necessarily think that's a problem and i have but to I think, be honest. but i think it's important to call that out well i have to be honest as part of it is i am watching this after discovery to which you know the best i felt was you know okay that was a decent episode of discovery like 
I have I had a lot of fun watching this episode. I could not say there was any even the episodes of Discovery that I liked. I could not say I had fun watching it. Like this was a goofy episode that I laughed about. It's not a you know brilliant episode of television. It would not I don't even know if I would say it was one of my favorite episodes of Voyager, but again, as just a I had a rough day of work. I came home and I you know saw everybody you know I saw the Voyager crew talking about the fanfic versions of themselves and, you know, coming up, you know, annoying Paris and Tuvok with their notes for it and all of that. Just as that episode, I liked it. I mean, it's a solid B minus, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I would say for Voyager, it's probably a B plus, And maybe for Star Trek as a whole, it's a B minus. I don't know. For me, worst case scenario is kind of endemic to Voyager as a whole, in a way. And and maybe this is a good opportunity for us to talk about the third season of Star Trek Voyager as a whole, because I think that we both started out with this season extremely worried about the show. Uh, we, we both hated the first yeah. few episodes of the season. And I think as the season went on and as Star Trek Voyager's third season revealed itself to us and as Jerry Taylor's interest in being showrunner revealed themselves to us, we were kind of like, all right, is this the best Star Trek show I've ever seen? No, but it's it's solid. It's decent. Like, I don't think that this is a show that is going to deeply go into these characters. I don't think this is a show that is going to, you know, be a resonant sort of show like Deep Space Nine, for instance. I don't necessarily think that that's a problem. Like, like I think I said in a previous podcast, if you want to watch Deep Space Nine, go watch Deep Space Nine. Like, Deep Space Nine exists. Yeah. We don't need Voyager to be like Deep Space Nine. However, I do think it's valuable to look at an episode like Worst Case Scenario and say that it's a, you know, as a microcosm for the type of storytelling that Star Trek, dis- that Star Trek Discovery, <laughs> that Star Trek Voyager does, what it shows me is that Star Trek Voyager, broadly speaking, is a television show that privileges momentary pleasures over i would say logical consistency Hmm. and is that a problem i don't know it it depends on what you're looking for when you're watching the show worst case scenario is fun i like it it's very entertaining the sesca motivations make absolutely no sense in context with the the show as established right and the character as established but I don't necessarily think that that you're supposed to look at it that way. I guess the question in my mind is, did Kenneth Biller remember how Seska left the show or not? And, (laughs) you know, I think that's the fundamental question that a lot of people grapple with with Star Trek Voyager is, is this a show that privileges momentary pleasure over logical consistency in plot and character because the writers are lazy and not paying attention? Or is it because they actually think that momentary pleasure is more important than logical consistency. And I don't know that we'll ever be able to answer that question. What I think is funny about the question you're asking is this is very much echoed in that conversation between Tuvok and Paris, where Tuvok is saying, well, according to the poetics, you know, we have to get this from, you know, things have to flow logically from character and, you know, all of that. And Tom Perez is saying, you know, I'm just trying to tell an exciting story. Like, I'm making this up as I go along. I'm coming up with these ideas just as I get them. And, you know, 
neither of them really decide what is right, you know, from that. And certainly, uh, I, I think certainly a blend of the two is possible and maybe the right way to go. But that is basically the question you're asking, you know, it, it, does it logically make sense that Seska would have done this? Maybe, maybe not. Is it a, is it a twist that I that you don't see coming and that you know gives a is is certainly shocking? Well, yeah. Was it worth the? I, I guess that's the question. That's the other question: Is doing this momentary pleasure at the expense worth it? In some cases, maybe it would be worth it. Maybe that kind of a twist is necessary. In others, I don't know. I mean. What I think is most interesting is about this episode is how it harkens back to plots that we don't care about anymore, in a way. Like, the whole... That the show doesn't care about Yeah! Uh, the whole tension with the Maquis is so in the past that, you know, everybody treats it as a lark, right? Like, the... I mean, not to talk too much about Scorpion yet, but part... You know, the, the scenes between Janeway and Chakotay in that episode are very much the, the are very much founded on you know Chakotay has Janeway's trust completely Chakotay is never going to mutiny against his captain that is you know very prime to their segments and you know this episode comes back to a time where maybe he would have maybe we weren't sure about Janeway as a captain maybe there was going to be this tension which is an out you know at first, you know, my my initial notes were saying, like, this is a very outdated plot that they're dealing with. This would have made more sense to be in season one. That, of course, becomes part of the point of the episode that, again, this tension, which was very real, very palpable, very dangerous, so dangerous that Tuvok felt the need to prepare for it, is something that three years later is, you know, just a fun little story that everybody's you know, talking about to blow off a little steam that Janeway doesn't even seem to be worried about. I mean, I think to to some degree, certainly you're, you're right. And, you know, if you look at worst case scenario as Kenneth Biller's meta commentary on Star Trek Voyager, I think it works a lot better. You know, whether or not Seska and what she does in this episode makes sense, it's at least somewhat believable. What wouldn't be believable, for example, would be, say, I don't know, the USS Enterprise showing up with Kirk as captain yeah. and, like, it, you know, blowing up Voyager or something. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Uh, at least it's not something like that. And I think that, you know, that conversation between Tom Paris and Tuvok, you know, about the the character motivations that are going into this and how plots need to be consistent and, you know, characters need to flow from that and all that kind of stuff. I think is is more intentional if you look at it from the point of view that Kenneth Biller is trying to imbue this episode with some sort of meaning aside from, oh, this is just a fun holodeck romp. Yeah. And I, I will say, too, that at the same time, I, I, this episode fundamentally, I think, causes me to have some doubts about Star Trek Voyager. You know, I am always conflicted about Voyager. I, I think it's a good TV show. I don't think it's a great TV show. I think that's okay, though. You know, like, I yeah. don't think that we need every single television show that we watch to be, like, an unabashed classic. And if Star Trek Voyager is just entertaining most of the time, I think that's okay. But what it comes down to for me is... I don't want a show to be lazy and I don't want a show to forget its own history because otherwise, why are you making a television show? 
You know, like if you don't want the audience to think about Seska and her motivations previously to this and think about the Maquis and their motivations previously to this, why are you writing this episode and why are you making a television show? Go write short stories. Go write movies. Like there's no need to you know, maintain any sort of, of timeline of events and character then. Yeah. I'm again, I think it's important that this, I, I think it's significant that this episode comes right before Scorpion, which is the show making a very dramatic shift. It's going to be a different show in season four. Scorpion is presaging it. This is kind of a capper on, some early seasons of Voyager and stuff that I don't think was necessarily um, filed away properly the, in a way. Again, the Maquis stuff just kind of peters out. This is a way of saying, yeah, you know, I mean, I was surprised at the relatively deep continuity this episode had. You know, we, it doesn't really, you know, this episode does hinge on us knowing who Seska is, knowing the Maquis plot, knowing stuff that, you know, if we had just started this in season three, we probably would not know really what was going on in this episode. This would be a very bad episode. Again, I think this is kind of a, I don't know, in some ways that whole, you know, that whole postmodern breaking the fourth wall, you know, winking, ha ha ha, you know, Tom Paris is just making it up along. We're just trying to get a good story, and that's Voyager. Um, that is a kind of very cynical and stupid and lazy and in, and uh, adolescent style of writing. But also keep in mind, this is 20 years old, and that particular brand of ironic humor was maybe a little fresher at that point. I think this that was kind of at the height of that style of uh, that very medium-aware kind of storytelling. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, I, you know, I don't want to get too grandiose, uh, ha ha ha, on track about. <laughs> but you know, I think the other thing too that's right, like to keep in mind, is to place this in a sort of cultural and sociological context yeah. because, you know, the '90s were sort of like this free for all. <laughs> In terms of like culture and society, I mean, like the economy was doing great and everybody felt like, oh, you know, we won the Cold War and we're, we don't have any problems anymore. And, you know, of course, that was untrue. And of course, that was a gross misreading of what was bubbling underneath the surface. And of course, America still had lots of problems and I'm not discounting any of that. But, you know, that's kind of how the 90s were were sort of experienced yeah. at the time. You know, we can look back on it now and say it was a very troubled time and here are all the problems that that were sort of bubbling up. So, yeah, I think that's right. Now, the other thing, too, of course, about worst case scenario is that you're right. Like this is putting a, a, a very strong capper on a number of things that the third season had already left behind, though. Like, you know, I remember talking to you about especially the second season of Voyager and how a lot of the issues that I think people have with how Voyager handled the Maquis storyline is because they wanted it to be like Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. And that's not how Voyager wanted to handle that story. Now, whether or not you agree or disagree with that, that's a different con that's a different question. But, you know, I don't, I generally have problems with people that say Voyager just ignored it. Well, no Voyager didn't ignore it. And they yeah. did mostly it did mostly come to an end after the second season with the death of Seska. Now, I guess my question for you is: When this episode started and Bellana and Chakotay are talking about a mutiny, 
you know, how, how did you, what did you think well, was going on? Here's the problem. The Netflix description for this episode is, Bolana finds a holodeck program in which the Maquis are, you know, taking over the ship. What's going to happen? So Stop reading the Netflix it's, it's It's right fucking there when you click <laughs> on the thing. I know. I know. So, um, you know, that said, I mean, there are, there is enough that is, odd about it you know they call balana ensign you know it's saying oh it's your first time at the helm oh it's janeway's first away mission i mean there are a few you know if you're there are some weirdnesses there yeah yeah if you're paying attention there are a lot of tells the fact that um seska doesn't really seem to know balana when it's been established the two were best friends you know and things like that um you know the fact that seska is in her bajoran disguise in this um there is a lot that again this um it does. If this were a first season episode, I would not have noticed that. It do, and and again, one of my notes is this feels like a first season plot. But uh, when it's revealed that the holodeck program was quote unquote written during the first season, that all makes sense. Um, but it is, you know, it is very against Chakotay's character as we have come to know him. Um, I mean, I think the Maquis plot deals itself out because number one their leader Chakotay is somebody who does come to respect Janeway and does come to respect her authority and so most mm-hmm. of the people underneath him kind of follow suit he's he, he is leading them into you know okay you know we've got to do this day-to-day life and working with these people makes it very difficult for them to want a mutiny against them because you know once you've been on a ship with somebody for a few years, you might not necessarily, you're probably not necessarily going to want to hold them hostage, you know? And and especially after seeing how everything ended up with Seska, I think that took, took everybody, took any remaining taste for mutiny out of the picture. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Well, and I think that raises another question too, that I want to pose to you, which is that, you know, obviously this is not actually happening and that yeah. most of the characters in this episode, at least that we see, you know, in the holodeck are Tuvok's impressions of them. So, you know, mostly that's Chakotay, um, a little bit of Tom Paris, a little bit of, you know, Harry Kim, a little bit of Tom, uh, uh, Tom Paris, for instance. But mostly this revolves around Tuvok's sort of initial impressions about Chakotay. And I think yeah. interestingly enough, I mean, they do reference... I think Sesco references in this episode that, you know, she is when when Tuvok and Tom Paris get stuck in there that, you know, she feels betrayed by Tuvok. They, you know, Tuvok betrayed them because, of course, he was undercover on their ship for a while. So Tuvok has known Chakotay even longer than someone like Janeway has. So a lot of what you see in this episode is Tuvok's impressions of Chakotay. And I wonder if you think that they are accurate or if they say more about Tuvok than they do about Chakotay. I mean, I think that suggests to me that Tuvok did not get very close to Chakotay during this time. As I said, it's kind of hard to hold hostage or betray somebody that you know very well, and Tuvok knows that he's not a real member of the Maquis. He knows he's not a real member of this crew. He knows Chakotay is not his real captain, so he's just going to the motions. Tuvok is somebody who can keep very detached and most of his emotional growth over the series has been because he is in this particularly unusual situation with the this particular group of people and 
as far as he knows, his time on Chakotay's ship was just a couple of months of time, and then he's going to go back to his real life. So he's playing a role, and he's, you know, I I mean, let, let me put it this way. Tuvok was essentially planning on betraying his captain, quote-unquote. You know, Chakotay going around and doing the same is not necessarily a condemnation of Chakotay, per se. It is doing—it is him doing the same thing that Tuvok essentially had just done. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I guess the other thing, too, is that it obviously makes Tuvok out to be maybe a little more— uh, suspicious or paranoid than he has been portrayed as. Although, you know, I don't know exactly how much work it is to create this sort of holodeck program. It doesn't seem like it is that hard to do, so maybe it's fine. Uh, it's about the the uh, effort of writing a twine, I'd say. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, but in terms of what, like outside of the holodeck stuff, you know, I think that what this episode is really important at is showing exactly how far all these people have come and that you know regardless of you know i think because you could you could argue right like why why make this episode now why bring this up now and i think your earlier point about this is ending a version of the show and that we're going into a different version of the show is important and i also think that it's to remind us that these people started out in a very particular place and they have gotten to a different place They, they get along very well and that, as we'll see with the events of, of Scorpion, that regardless of whether or not the Maquis were under the yoke of the Starfleet personnel or not, and some of them felt like they were, like Seska and uh, Jonas, right? And some of them obviously felt like they weren't, like Chakotay and Bellana got along pretty well with them very quickly and, and kind of adapted to that very quickly, that that's almost a, a you know, a, a an argument that they can't even have anymore because even if the Maquis and Starfleet were still having disagreements, uh, you know, let's spin this out and say, even if they had kept them in the Maquis uniforms, like Michael Pillar wanted to at the beginning of the first season, you know, now they're getting to Borg space and these arguments are dangerous and meaningless at this point because they, they just don't have the luxury of arguing over philosophy like this anymore yeah not to get to we'll obviously get into the parable of the scorpion but that's almost like saying it's a maquis nature to betray well that's no that's not the case that's again the maquis just the maquis formed from a very particular political situation that is 70 years away from them this point and you know they're all working together and they all live and die as one and you know, while you can have issues with certain of Janeway's decisions, the fact is she's gotten them this far, and I think they all kind of are with her now. So, they, you know, they, they're not going to betray and mutiny just because it's their nature to betray and mutiny. That's not the case. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a really good point because, you know, maybe the last thing I'll say about this episode, and we can move on to Scorpion because I sense you're excited to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, like a small example of that is I went out of the country uh, last week and just being outside of the country for like five days, you really do get a sense that everything that's happening in America is like very distant. And, you know, I was just there on vacation. I wasn't there to to live there. And so the Maquis being on this Starfleet ship, 70,000 light years from everything they ever knew 
you know, it is going to take priority yeah. over what they 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 knew back in the Alpha Quadrant. It, it doesn't matter to them anymore. You know, obviously the, the key yeah. stuff is still going on, although well, you know, not for much longer because as we know of what about what happened to the Maki in Deep Space Nine, they they don't survive the Dominion War. But as far as the Maki on the ship are concerned, it's still going on, but it doesn't but matter anymore. And in its way, although they don't know how the Maki situation is going to end, it's 70 years as far as they know before they... Now, it's going to be only three more years, we know, because we are... Uh, four, four more years because... Uh, you know, we have that information from knowing how long the show is. But, you know, as far as the Maki knows, well, they sem- may not get home at the end of the series. You don't know. They get home at the end of the series. Come on. Uh, yes. No, the last shot of Voyager is Voyager destroyed and just a narrative. You know, uh, Voyager was ne- Voyager never returned home. Um, it's like Quantum Leap in that way. Um, you know, as whatever happens to the Maki. 70 years from now, that situation will be resolved. They have no power to affect it either way. They have no idea how it's going to end or not, but right. it's not their dance anymore, you know? So they kind of really can't worry about it anymore. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's a good place to leave. Worst case scenario. All right, well, let's move on to Scorpion. But before we do that, I just want to take a quick opportunity to remind all of you, the loyal listeners of Truck About, that this podcast is listener supported. We rely on your generous donations to pay all of our costs. The costs are substantial. Well, not really, but they are they are costs, and uh, we like to not pay them. So if you want to go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow, and you can check out our reward tiers and uh, give us a little bit of money. Thank you. All right, let's talk about Scorpion. Okay. Um, so the Borg are happening. We knew the Borg were going to happen, and it's interesting because... What we had been what we had been saying a little bit throughout the past couple of years is that the more you see the Borg, in some ways, the more ineffective they become. Right? Like you know the uh, what was, first contact the Borg were very scary. It was a very you know horror thing. But you know I would never go as far as to say the Borg have become a little cuddly. But we know them, right? Like we. We've interacted with them. We know the nature of the Borg. We know all of that. And so part of me was worried of, okay, well, if the Borg are going to be the big villains of Voyager, that's going to kind of decay them a bit. And going in this way to where, okay, well, there's some, uh, there's a species that's even worse than the Borg. Now, I don't know what species 8462 is going to have, what role it's going to have. Uh, excuse what. me, 8472. 8472, whatever. Um, I don't know what role that is going to have in the larger story of Voyager, but I think that's a pretty effective way of using the Borg. You know, we know what the Borg is, are. We know they're dangerous. We know they are, um, you know, uh, Janeway reading these logs and saying, you know, oh, you know, it was Captain So-and-so says the Borg are pure evil and all of that. And then to have a, a, a species who actually does appear to be pure evil and is worse than the Borg, I think that's a pretty effective way of telling the story. It is a very good story for Voyager, which is this tiny ship in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I, I think that's all right. And what I wonder about with how Voyager is using the Borg is... You know, certainly I think that that to a certain degree you can argue, okay, we knew this was going to have to happen eventually. Now, it doesn't have to happen, of course, because this is a television show and they can write whatever they want. But 
they want to use the Borg. The Borg are popular. Uh, it, it, it ratchets up the dramatic tension and danger to, to the ship dramatically. Uh, you know, the previous instances of the, let's call them full Borg, not the Borg that we see in like Descent, for example, uh, is that they are unstoppable, that they are completely, completely unstoppable. There is no way that Voyager is ever going to be able to get out of this situation without being assimilated or destroyed. This is a really, really big, bad situation and almost an unwinnable one I, you know on the other hand i think that you could argue and i don't know that i'm necessarily arguing this but i i think take this as a a devil's advocate position is that this is a worrisome sign for voyager's health because voyager has had three years to establish the delta quadrant and frankly i think it has done a very bad job of that yeah and so now they are relying on something that they did not create in order to make the show more interesting to people. I think that is definitely a possibility. I mean, one of the things that they never did with the Delta Quadrant is there is no governing body. There is no um there is no federation. There is no dominion. Um both both the you know, the previous two shows we've seen have had been characterized by their larger governance by the provides a faction that has most of the control of them and by certain, you know, factions antagonistic to them. Um, I mean, most of the people we've met have had no idea. You ask any of the species that we've seen so far from the Delta Quadrant about the Borg, most of them would have really no answer for them. Most of them would not have encountered them. Most of them would have... And now Voyager always does play fast and loose with distances. It doesn't quite make sense, but um, it's not as if the Talaxians would have been ever worried about them. It's not like the Kazon were worried about them. Um, However, Neelix does seem to know who they are, which is interesting. And I, I, th- I you know, I don't necessarily want to go down a road of like fanficking this, but I, I think in a certain sense I have to because I think that this is a good opportunity to demonstrate that Voyager is a good television show that nevertheless does not have very much vision Mm. and that it is a little bit hampered by the fact that it has so many showrunners with so many different ideas about what the show is. Because I I think that, you know, if I was showrunning Voyager and I had started showrunning Voyager from the first season, I think I could say, okay, well, we want to do the Borg. We want to do the Borg at a certain point. You know, let's make the Delta Quadrant a place where large intergalactic, you know, intergover- uh, interplanetary organizations don't really develop. That yeah. species that develop space travel try and stay under the radar as much as possible, so as not to attract the Borg's presence. You know, this would be an interesting way to demonstrate exactly why the Delta Quadrant is lawless, to use your term, and and why it doesn't have large empires and why it's not a a place that feels settled because all of the species that get to that place are terrified of attracting the Borg's attention. Yeah, anything that gets too big is going to be assimilated before it can, you know, because, and maybe you could even deal with the Kazon. How have the Kazon escaped the notice of the Borg? Well, you know, that could be part of the reason they stick so closely to their territories, you know, things like that. That does make a lot of sense. Um, it's, it's a retconning on your part, but one that I think could work. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that it's, it's to the show's detriment that they never really do that. I mean, I, I don't want to 
get away from the fact that you know Voyager in its first three seasons, like I said, has not done a very good job of characterizing the Delta Quadrant in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, you know the Kazon didn't stick, the Vidians didn't stick. Other alien races have have appeared in, in one or two episodes, but but really there has been no breakout thing that Voyager has had, and it's interesting to me that the I mean. In a lot of circles, the joke about Voyager is that it's Star Trek Borg. Now, I don't necessarily agree or subscribe to that joke or theory, but going forward, the Borg do play a very large role in Voyager. And it was the one thing I knew about it. Right. I mean, let, 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 let's go back to Netflix. The picture they have for Star Trek Voyager is of Seven of Nine, who we haven't even met yet. You know, that's how important the Borg are to the mythology of the series. Yeah, and I also think it's hard to talk about Scorpion w- without knowing what happens next, of course, yeah. because, I mean, you already know that Kess leaves the show. Uh, that's happening imminently. Uh, and you know that Seven of Nine is going to join the cast, and I don't think it's going to come as any surprise to you that that is also going to happen imminently. Yeah. Um, I love the character of Seven of Nine. I think she's a great character. I don't think we can really talk about her yet because you don't know who she is. Mm. Uh, but I do think that at least in that respect, Voyager was trying to do its own spin on the Borg and really getting at the heart of the Borg and how much damage they do. And, you know, I think that on a pure storytelling level, Voyager, on a pure storytelling level, I think Scorpion works extremely well. It's tense. It's well-written. I think that that scene between Chakotay and Janeway that you referenced earlier where, yeah. you know, they are essentially arguing with each other is is very well done and it it comes from a real place of character motivation that you can really understand which is i think rare for this show frankly and it's it's you know i i have i have questions for you about janeway's choices in this episode i i have concerns about her choices in this episode but let's let's actually start there Janeway is becoming increasingly reckless, and I think that this is something that we have picked up on more and more as Voyager has gone on. And I think that this is certainly not at the apex of Janeway's recklessness, but she is making a deal with the Borg to give them a biological weapon. Yeah. Uh, Now, that's maybe not as bad as, say, something Cisco has done, but it's pretty bad, and that is something that we are not used to Starfleet captains doing. Yeah. Now, granted, it's a it's a biological weapon that is going to be used to attack something that is a I mean, they you know, the Borg are described as malevolence, as evil personified. They are, you know, lawful evil as far onto that sta- that uh, part of the alignment as you can get. Um, but. In a way, the Borgs, mo- the Borg have motivations that do make sense. Uh, they assimilate. Yes, if, if assimilation is an act of pure evil, let's say that. But their reasons for assimilating, because this is how we grow our species, this is how we diversify, this is how we get new technology, this is how we get you know technological and biological diversity or uniqueness or whatever the phrase is. Um, Your biological reason- and technical uh, technological distinctiveness will be added to our own. This- yeah, that that that's the Borg explaining why they are doing what they're doing. Again, it is evil. It is something that we cannot agree with, but we understand it. Species 8472 
destroys everything because it just doesn't like it, right? Like, they're, they they don't seem to... Now, granted, we, we may learn more of it, but they have this, well, weakness must be punished and destroyed. And, you know, they... they it appears that they are getting out of their singularity into the Delta Quadrant just to smash everything that's in their way. Um, we will probably learn something a little more about that, sure, but... Yeah, I wouldn't read... I, I would not take that at face value. And I, I think that it's interesting that you are taking that at face value because, well, it's, I again, I mean, I hate to keep harping on this, but I, I think that I think that you just don't expect very much from this show. And I think if, if Species 8472 had been demonstrated in this way in The Next Generation you would be saying, well, we don't know. We can't take this at face value. There's a lot of caveats involved. But with this show, you're like, yeah, okay. Species 8472, they're evil. They want to destroy everything. I just find that interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess part of where I'm taking this is, again, part I'm taking it with the information I have right now, but I'm also thinking of Harry Kim with his, you know, with that snot coming out of him and... You know, he's fully conscious and he's being cancer-eaten away from this and the single tear. And, I mean, that is such a parallel to um, you know, Picard, you know, being Borged and having, you know, the, his single tear and all of that. And I, know, I, I, I would be very surprised if it wasn't a deliberate callback to that. But, yeah. Yes. And to me, again, Picard is going through an experience that is torture, an experience that is very traumatizing, an experience that haunts him for as long as TNG is able to have a character haunted by these things. Um, But for a reason, for the reason of being turned into a Borg, it seems as if Harry Kim is being eaten away at this thing for days while fully conscious just because fuck you, Harry Kim. Um, It doesn't seem like there, you know, the... Doctor can't seem to find any reason or rationale for why this is happening to him. Again, it just seems as if it's pain for its own sake. Uh, again, now there could be things that we learn from about Species 8472 that change things completely. Perhaps they are just trying to get revenge on the Borg for, and really they only care about the Borg, and Harry is just incidental and an accident, but... From what we've seen right now, they are just trying to kill everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I would caution you to to not take everything at face value. And I think that, you know, what I think is going on is that if you look at the way that the Borg was, was introduced and developed in The Next Generation, it was this this massive force this faceless enemy that that just you know personified cancer to use your term that it just ate everything in its path and it just wanted to consume everything and that of course has been modified over the the ensuing years however i think that eight species 8472 is taking that to the next level that they're saying, oh, well, here's an alien species that, you know, completely has absolutely no known reason for doing this. I mean, at least the Borg have some reason, as you say, even though we don't think it's a good reason. Uh, it is a reason. It is a understandable motivation. The The motivations of Species 8472 are completely unknown. And I think the open question is, will Voyager give us that motivation or not? 
If it does and it's satisfying, I will be okay with it. If it doesn't, I'm much less okay with it. I don't think they're going to be – I mean, put it this way. Kess is able to have some kind of communion with them, right? She's able to communicate with them, and this is still a Star Trek show, and so I think we will learn more about them. I think I, – I assume Kess will have a conversation with them, about them, and I wonder if that has any connection to why she leaves the show, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. – um. You know, does she end up in the other quadrant as an ambassador to Species 8472? I don't know, but um, I, 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 obviously, again, this is all the information I know right now. This is all the information that Janeway has right now. All she knows is that she understands a bit about the Borg and the Borg's motivations. She understands nothing about this other species, and she has the opportunity to make a deal. Yeah, but I but I, I I don't want to I don't want to let you off that easy though because I, okay. I I think that that you know at the end of the day what Janeway is doing here is you know the Star Trek does deal in moral absolutes right like Star Trek is a franchise as I've said before that believes in good and does not believe in the existence of evil and that you know for a, a captain in Starfleet to say that the Borg is as close to pure evil as can ever exist i think is about as harsh as star trek ever gets mm-hmm. they you know that that line to me indicates that that captain thinks that there is some redemption for the Borg possibly even so when Janeway decides to use the information that they have found about Species 8472 and, and, and use it as a bargaining chip to get safe passage through Borg space, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I think it's to the show's credit that Chakotay obviously has yeah. a problem with it and argues with her, but... Janeway's single-mindedness about getting this crew home is becoming, I think, a little bit of a pathology. Well, it's, number one, it's pretty funny that, um, what were Chakotay's motivations for mutinying in the holodeck program in Worst Case Scenario? That Janeway is too soft, that she's going on these scientific explanations. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this crew home. That's exactly what Janeway is doing in this. Again, I think the placement of the two episodes is fairly deliberate because, you know, here we have, again, Janeway is doing something that was considered that Tuvok viewed was a bad thing. And that that Chakotay is in no way going against that, that and, he's registering his displeasure, but not muted. Yeah. And I, I think that's a fantastic point. And, and, and let's not forget either that Picard faced this almost exact choice in I Borg and ultimately decided not to do it. And that was after the Borg had invaded Federation space and destroyed like 50 starships. Yeah. And, and you know, like made an end run at Earth. Uh, the Borg actually had it coming in a way, whereas they don't know anything about Species 8472. They have some vague thing about how they're just there to destroy everybody. But who the fuck knows? That could be a bad translation. 
they they know that one of them attacked Harry Kim or maybe didn't. We don't know. Like maybe he was just trying to get back to his ship and Harry Kim was in the way. You see what yeah, I'm doing? I mean, there, the, there are ways to yeah. interpret these events in, in very different in two different ways. And so to and, me, I look at this and I say, Janeway is doesn't know anything about species eight four seven two. She has no idea who they are. She has no idea what their motivations are. She has not even tried to really talk to them. I mean, she tried to hail the ship once, but that was it. And she goes, all right, well, whatever. They're not answering the phone, so time to kill them all. And and now she's making a deal with the Borg because she wants to get her crew home. This is a Janeway that is extremely different from the Janeway in Caretaker. And I think it... it and this is the thing that I always, I always struggle with with Voyager is... I don't know how self-aware the show is about this. Hmm. I don't well, know. Number one, I also do want to add the point that one of the last, one of the latter plot points in Deep Space Nine was a biological weapon that would destroy the Dominion that the show decided was beyond the pale and something that needed to be counteracted. So that's a thing, too. Um, I mean, look at it this way. Like, if Janeway gets back to uh, the Alpha Quadrant, and she goes, hey, guys, guess what? I gave the Borg a biological weapon to destroy their enemy. Are they going to be okay with that? I mean, I kind of feel like she's going to get court-martialed. You know, I guess for me, this parallel, the parable of the scorpion is pretty significant in this episode. Obviously, it gives the episode its name. But um, it reminds me, the story that Chakotay tells reminds me of a Zen parable that's extremely similar. It's there's two monks by a river. The elder one sees a scorpion drowning in the river and he's going to save it. And the younger monk is saying, what are you doing? You know, it's the scorpion's nature to sting you. The elder monk ignores him, picks up the scorpion, scorpion stings him. And the younger monk says, see, I told you it's the scorpion's nature to sting. Why did you help him? And the elder monk says, well, it was in my nature to do that. In some ways, it's the Federation's nature to use diplomacy and make friends with everybody, right? Like, um, it is, you know, let's put aside Species 8472 might be nice after all. Let's put that aside for the moment. I think Janeway comes off as almost slightly naive then in in the way that the Federation can come off as sometimes slightly naive in that she's thinking, well, you know something? Maybe even the Borg we can be used diplomacy with. Maybe we can be friends with the Borg. Maybe we can have an agreement with the Borg that here's our territory, here's yours, and, you know, we can get some trading agreements and things will be fine, and we'll figure out things we both need and all of those things. That's Janeway's nature. Um, now, whether or not that jibes with who Janeway has been over the course of the series or not, you know, not quite the point at the moment, but I don't know. That's the place that that decision seems to be coming home. Yes, there is the single mindedness to get home and Janeway is not fully thinking of the consequences of the actions. But I think in a way she thinks she's offering them an olive branch. The, the Borg are going to take it and they'll be fine friends then. Sure. But but then I mean, can they be? I don't know. I just I just think that like if it was two separate Borg sides or something, right, fighting against yeah. each other, I think that it would have been a much more morally clear area. Uh but then again, I don't know. And and I I I worry that the show is not is not thinking about these things enough. 
You know, I, I, I mean, I've, I've made this point in the past, but I'll make it again. It's a little churlish, but this is not Star Trek's A team. You know, this, <laughs> these yeah. writers are not the people that were writing on Deep Space Nine. And Deep Space Nine had a lot of moral ambiguities and a lot of gray areas, and it did a lot of things to make you think about what was right and what was wrong and do the ends justify the means and all of these things, right? And ultimately, I think it fell down sometimes. For the most part, it did a good job of that. I don't think Voyager is that show. And and maybe part of my, my reluctance to embrace Scorpion wholeheartedly is because I don't think that this Voyager is is this type of show. I don't think this is what Voyager is good at. And it's it's trying to put on the TNG DS9 pants and it's just it's they don't fit. It you know Yeah. Is that See, is that is that churlish? I don't know. Well, I guess part of my question is and this may not be one we can answer right at this moment, but something like best of both worlds they wrote part one, went away for the summer, and then they wrote part two without really uh, – and only had the most general idea, if that, of how they were going to get out of that. And we've seen that in a couple of times. But number one, we know that this is going to lead to a shift in the in the st- kinds of stories Voyager is going to tell, a major shift in characters. And do they have Scorpion part two in mind when they're writing this? Um. Are you asking me if writers do any more work than is necessary at the time? <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, fair enough. But I mean, at the same time, you know, writers do have, you know, think. I mean, maybe they, you know, they certainly haven't written maybe the outline for part two. But, you know, do they know if Species 8472 is really evil or, you know, just misunderstood? I don't know. I, I don't know how to answer that question. I, I don't yeah, necessarily I don't think, can, think yeah. that they knew at that point. Um, you know, and so I guess that's a big part of, again, this is in some ways hard to talk about not knowing where it goes because, um, again, if it's revealed, they're just misunderstood, then, uh, Janeway's actions and decisions have a very different, uh, weight to them mm-hmm. than if they genuinely are just trying to destroy all life in the galaxy. Sure. And, well, you know, because if they are destroying, trying to destroy all life in the galaxy, then they are something that needs to be stopped even from, you know, even at even at the behest of the Borg. You know? I, I just eventually. Yeah, I, I just think that maybe Janeway should have had the crew do a little more homework or investigation before she leaped to the conclusion that that the species 8472 was that threat. Yeah, if all 8472 is going to do is destroy the Borg and then, you know, they, they'll they go home and, you know, that's the end of it, um, then yes, it is Voyager's best interest to, okay, well, the Prime Directive says we can't deal with the balance of power, so we're just going to let this play out and hopefully, you know, in six months the Borg will be gone and as will Species 8472 and then it's, that's it's, it. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think it's just something that, that, you know, is increasingly uh, evident to me, which is that Janeway is a character and a captain that is increasingly comfortable with making decisions with very little information. And, you know, sometimes you have to do that, but she doesn't even attempt to get the information, which I think is the more damning thing. 
Well, that's and that's part of one of Chakotay's points, though. Um, at one point, he says something like, "You're not. You're just thinking about your plan and how clever it is, and not really thinking it through." And in a way, that's almost a scientist kind of a thing. Like, we're going to look at the problem without thinking about any ethical ramifications of that. Now, you know, not to say scientists never think of that, but that's kind of a cliche, right? Like, we're going to invent the atom bomb because here's a problem and, you know, we can solve it and we're not going to think about, you know, what this is going to do to people. And so, I mean, this is part of the... I think this is part of the contrast to Da Vinci when he has this, you know, device at the beginning is like, this is going to help any blacksmith and stuff like that. I mean, he's, you know, he's coming up with these solutions, you know, to problems that maybe will not be practical in the right. long run. But um, at least he's trying to think at least there is a reason behind it in some ways. Janeway comes up with a clever, badass, ballsy plan uh, that, you know, that involves, you know, all of the members of her crew working at their optimal and doing their best. And that's all very good and that's great. But does that, you know, does the fact that they are all working on this clever plan, is that enough to justify it? Or does it make more sense to, again, Finding a nice planet to stick by for a year or two and then, you know, sticking our heads out and seeing if is a much easier plan and maybe more effective. But in in a way, in Janeway's eyes, that makes it less of a plan. Yeah, because, I mean, I think for me, what it comes down to is that that everything for Janeway is some sort of like vital emergency. Right. And, you know, why do they need to make this decision right now? Yeah. Why why can't they just I, hang back for a couple weeks and gather some information? Like nothing like the Borg aren't going after them. Species 8472 isn't really going after them. I mean, they could hang back and say, "Okay, we're just going to hang out with the Borg and not worry about it." Yeah. You know, I I don't I don't know why everything is so urgent. It doesn't seem like a delay of a couple days or a week is really going to make any difference. I mean, you know, again, to bring up worst case scenario, like the whole thing with, you know, the, the holodeck Chakotay's mutiny in that episode was that, you know, Janeway wants to waste all this time stopping and looking at every single anomaly in the galaxy. And I don't know. And I think that to some degree, this episode also makes Tuvok out to be again, uh, a character that is not really living up to the way the character was portrayed in the first season because, you know, he was portrayed as her advisor, as her trusted friend, yeah. and he doesn't have anything to say about this. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's even part of, again, Chakotay makes this exact point. Like, you know, he's talking about the difference between retreat and, you know, surrender, right? They're not giving up. They're not running away. They're just hanging back while the situation, you know, let's give, let's commit all of our full resources towards, number one, figuring out how to cure Harry Kim. You know, the doctor even says that he's got, you know, he just has prototypes right now. What Mm -hmm. if um, in the long run they turn out not to work and that pisses the Borg off? Like they could, you know, let's figure out how to... You know, priority number one, let's get to safety. Priority number two, let's cure Harry Kim. Priority number three, let's develop this these prototypes even further. Priority number four, let's find some research on this. And, you know, and Janeway does says, well, we have this window of opportunity now. But, 
you know, and who knows what's going to change in a couple of weeks. And yes, it is possible that in two weeks the species 8472 is going to completely overwhelm the Borg. Yes, it is possible that the Borg in the next couple of weeks are going to figure out how to assimilate this species. But in some ways, does that really change their situation? There's, their research is not going to go to waste either way. Right, yeah, it doesn't. And I think that, that you know, the episode does try and, you know, make this a more urgent threat because Species 8472 essentially blows up a planet. And you're like, all right, that's that's impressive. Good, good job, guys. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess we're just going to have to see where it goes in the second part. Uh I, I will say that, of course, I am playing devil's advocate here a little bit because I, I do know where this yeah. goes, and so I'm I'm somewhat I'm somewhat okay with where it goes, and I'll just leave it at that, I guess. Well, yeah, and again, I have no. I mean, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm I have no idea how this is going to lead. He he literally to seven is. Nine. I, I'm very worried he's going to fall. Ah! All right, well, I think we'll leave it there. If you have any thoughts on either worst-case scenario or Scorpion, you can leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. Check out our Patreon, as I said earlier, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. One of our fantastic reward tiers that you may enjoy is our monthly patrons-only episode. We have done many, many, many different topics, and uh, 2018 is going to be a good year for the patron specials. So now would be a great time to get involved, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we are there. Truck About Show is our username on all of those social media platforms. And as always, please leave us an Apple Podcasts iTunes review for Truck About. It is the best way for new people to find the show. All right, next week we're kicking off the fourth season of Star Trek Voyager with Scorpion Part 2 and The Gift. <laughs>